following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. We are in the second week of a new series in the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, one thing I didn't mention last week is that this series is part of our thematic thread for the whole year, which, as you may remember, is Deep Waters. We, uh, as a leadership team and staff, uh, decided that we wanted to spend this ministry year focusing on um, becoming deeper as a church. And so we are engaging in um, lots of different ways, engaging in the three movements of spiritual formation, scripture, prayer, and service. And so throughout this ministry year, in addition to doing things like studio on Thursday nights, you can come to studio on Thursday nights, it's not too late to get started with that, um, and in addition to trying to rethink the way we do things when we come together for connection or social type stuff and kind of give it more of a purpose and more of a service angle uh, and that kind of thing, we are also trying to go a little bit deeper in studying the scripture um, in uh, the the series that we, the sermon series that we put together. And uh, so this series, uh, called The Second Law in the book of Deuteronomy, is uh, part of that deep waters thread. And we, when, we, when we do these uh, scripture, I mean, we, we study the scripture all the time. There's always Bible in the sermons, um, I hope. <laughs> if you ever notice one without Bible, please tell me, that's a problem. Um, but we, uh, we're hoping to go a little bit deeper and to study this in a little bit more kind of a holistic way, and specifically to think about um, what our life in Christ looks like uh, as we kind of try to fold scripture and prayer and service all together. Thank you very much, Brandon. And uh, we decided when we were planning out these series that we needed to do an Old Testament book, something from the Hebrew Bible, because it's been a while since we studied the Old Testament in this way. And Deuteronomy seemed like a good option because, well, for two reasons. First of all, Deuteronomy is essentially a summary of a lot of what has already happened in Torah, the Torah being the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the central part of the Jewish canon. Um, it's called the second law, Deuteronomos means second law, because it's the second giving of the Jewish law to people. We talked about that last week a little bit. So that's the first reason we chose this. The second reason we chose it is because Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy quite a quite a bit in his ministry. And so we will be spending several weeks in this book uh, exploring some of the major themes and kind of holding them up into the light of Christ and seeing how does this Old Testament, this Jewish text, um, speak to us, uh, 21st century Americans, in light of Jesus, right? So there's this uh, kind of um, cultural triangulation that's going on. And of course, we as Christian people look at everything in the Bible through the lens of Christ, Last week, we started by looking at the themes of remembering and forgetting. And you'll remember, if you were here, that Moses uh, led the people up to the brink of the promised land, and then he said, stop, wait, remember, remember, remember. Remember all that God did for you. Remember all that you did in the wilderness, all the ways you messed up. Remember the way that God was faithful to you. And he said, do not forget. Do not forget the covenant with the Lord. The Lord will not forget his covenant with you. Do not forget your covenant with the Lord. Remembering and forgetting. And this week, we move on to another big theme, huge theme in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, which is the theme of idolatry and other gods. This um, plays out throughout the, uh, the Bible, of course, but in this particular book, it's very, very present. Uh, and so to lay this theme out, I want to read together uh, from the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have a Bible, please try to find Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you want to grab one of the red Bibles that's 
uh, on the ground or in the seat pockets. This would be on uh, page 141 in those Bibles. I'll give you a chance to find that and tell you that this is uh, early on in Moses' address, and it's kind of the first big and obvious and overt statement about idolatry. And notice how he weaves in remembering and do not forget in, the, in this, this paragraph here. Here's what he says, starting in verse 15 of chapter 4. Since you saw no form... When the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the fire, take care and watch yourselves closely so that you do not act corruptly by making an idol for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. I'll pause here and I'll ask you, do you hear the echoes of the creation accounts? And then he says, when you look up to the heavens and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the host of heaven, do not be led astray and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples everywhere under heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron smelter, out of Egypt, to become a people of his very own possession as you are now. So this is the first of many statements in Deuteronomy, condemning idolatry. It's strong and clear. It evokes their history in the wilderness. It evokes the stories of creation. It evokes their experience in Egypt, weaves all of their history together, and tells them, uh, do not worship idols. And the command against idolatry will be repeated later in this chapter, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, It appears in the very next chapter. Chapter 5 is the chapter in the book of Deuteronomy where the Ten Commandments come out again. Remember, it's a restatement of the law, so it already was given in Exodus 20, and now it's given again in Deuteronomy 5. And uh, in Deuteronomy 5, when the command against idolatry is given, it comes with this rather ominous uh, warning that the Lord God punishes children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject him. That doesn't sound so good. It is tempered by this wonderful, beautiful uh, counterpoint but shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love him and keep his commandments. And then we'll see uh, the command against idolatry play out again and again and again as uh, through all 34 chapters of Deuteronomy, you see it sprinkled in pretty much everywhere. So believe me, by the time uh, the book is finished and Moses is dead and he's buried and the people are ready to be led into the promised land by their new leader, Joshua, they will not be able to say in any way that they... They didn't know they weren't supposed to worship idols. It's been, it'll been quite clear by that point. And they took it so seriously that there are actually uh, significant um, punishments prescribed for people who practice idolatry. I mean, uh, it's a capital offense in the Mosaic Law. Death by stoning for idolaters. Um, it's so important to their identity that to worship the one true God that it's... Uh, that the idolatry of the nations around them is used as a rationale for warfare and for uh, sacking entire cities and leaving nothing behind. Some of the most difficult and painful um, texts in the whole Bible um, are somehow connected to this uh, prohibition against idolatry, which may or may not make it easier to stomach those texts. We could talk about that sometime if you want. 
And it's so deeply embedded in the Jewish mindset that Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness by the devil, responds to one of the temptations to bow down to him and worship him by quoting from Deuteronomy 6 uh, a a verse that has this anti-idolatry echo in it. He says, remember, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So uh, Jesus kind of tells us that uh, idolatry is first and foremost a distraction from worshiping the Lord your God, worshiping the one true God. But that's not the only reason it's prohibited. Here's a, 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 I'm going to drop a big central theme of really all of the Jewish scriptures, but um, we're in Deuteronomy and it's certainly present there. I won't uh, unpack it too much right now, but help it, uh, I hope that it helps to have this theme in the back of your mind as you read the Old Testament, which is the theme of uh, that, that God's people are called to be holy, which, which doesn't mean like perfect so much as it means different. It means set apart for a purpose. Right? Uh, that they're supposed to be different from their neighbors, different from their enemies, different from all those around them. Not just for the sake of being different. Uh, th- these were not Jewish hipsters. <laughs> uh, but because the blessing which was given to Abraham and his descendants was given for the purpose that they might be a blessing to the other nations around them. Uh, he says to Abraham, I'll make you a great family, a nation. The, the words are sort of interchangeable in this language and in this culture. I'll make you a family through which all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right? So it's not, a, it's not just an elevation to say, you're, you're better than everybody else and you should act like it. No, it's nothing like that as a matter of fact. It's God saying, I'm blessing you in a special way so that you can bless the others around you. And part of that means being different and showing a different way. Um, Verse 6 of chapter 4, which is before the passage we read, uh, Moses says, You must observe these commandments diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples, to the nations, to the families, to the others, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and discerning people. And Moses asks the beautiful rhetorical question, For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him? And here's another reason that idolatry is prohibited. It's very, I, this was not in my notes until this morning when I woke up. <laughs> this is the weirdest thing. And I was looking at Instagram, and I saw the Instagram account of Matthew Smith, who was here leading us in Sunday night, or Saturday night church last night, uh, the Indelible Grace uh, lead singer and songwriter from last night. And he had quoted from Psalm 135, 15 through 18. Here's what Psalm 135, 15 through 18 says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, and there is no breath in their mouths. And then this is the hammer in this passage. Those who make them and all who trust them shall become like them. And so his comment on that, which I will just repeat because it's so dead on, is this. Idolatry is dehumanizing. Worshiping the Lord, on the other hand, is an invitation to become fully human. 
So Psalm 135 seems to say that you become like what you are worshiping. And if it's an idol that has eyes but can't see and ears that can't hear and, and is basically just a, a, a pale imitation of a real, a real being, that's what you become. Now, all of these reasons are accompanied by some warnings. What will happen if you engage in idolatry? Uh, and it's uh, not a particularly pretty picture. If you look at verses 25 through 28... Uh, when you have had children and children's children, you hear the echoes of that, that warning and promise from the Ten Commandments? And when you become complacent in the land, if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything, thus doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to occupy. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples. Only a few of you will be left among the nations where the Lord will lead you. There you will serve other gods made by human hands, objects of wood and stone that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. These two texts are different from each other. They're separated in time and genre and everything. The psalm text and this text are different. Now, those of you who are Bible nerds know the rest of the story of Israel, which is essentially that this exact thing happened. They disobeyed God. They descended into idolatry. They were conquered. They were sent into exile. They became assimilated into the culture. And that holiness, that special set-apartness was washed away. And so this is either um, a very prescient statement of foreshadowing or it was written with the benefit of hindsight while the Israelites were in exile. And there's probably a little bit of truth to both of those things. The point is that this is exactly what happened to the people. And whether it's a prediction of what will happen or an explanation for what did happen, the same truth is present there which is that uh, worshiping idols and taking your attention and focus off the one true God uh, is a recipe for destruction. By the way, speaking of texts that sound like each other, there's a, a passage from the prophet Jeremiah from the time when the Israelites were in exile after all of this Uh, entry into the promised land had happened after they'd lived for a while and then descended into idolatry, after they'd been conquered and sent out. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor is it in them to do good. These idols are simply objects. There is no life in them. But let's stop for just a moment, because whatever this story is about, it can't be about us, can it? Um, When we get to that very important question of how do we apply this to our 21st century context, um, it's so far removed from what we know and understand and see in the world around us. How on earth can we make any sense of this? At the same time, we worship the same God. We ought to heed these same warnings. And so what I would propose is that what 
it may be that we need to, uh, to uh, think of a broader definition of idolatry. Because I don't think, now with, with some exceptions, I don't think it's very likely that we are tempted to go and worship an object, a statue or uh, anything like that. Right? That kind of, uh, of, like we'll call it literal idolatry, where we're worshiping an idol, a physical object that, that looks like a human form but has no humanity in it, that looks like it might be divine but has no divinity in it, that particular definition of idolatry is probably not the kind of thing that we are at risk of engaging in. Is that fair to say? Again, with some exceptions and in other cultures that may be a lot closer to what the experience is like. But for 21st century Americans, I don't think that's what we really struggle with. And so I would propose this as a broader definition of idolatry. Here's what I think idolatry is, and this definition would apply for that kind of literal idolatry and for something that we need to think about uh, in our culture. Idolatry is replacing the one true God with an object, person, or symbol in which you place your trust. Let me say that again. Idolatry is replacing the one true God with an object, person, or symbol in which we place our trust. It's taking your eyes off the prize. It's that that original definition of idolatry uh, when I said that Jesus quoted and said, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. When your life becomes focused on something else, and most importantly, when your trust and sense of identity becomes focused on something else, that is idolatry, whether it's the Israelites or whether it's the Americans. Anybody in between and all around, that definition could apply. And so, I was raised in the church, and I'm going to tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to preach the sermon at you that I heard a few hundred times uh, growing up, which is that your music is an idol. You need to throw your CDs in the trash. Uh, we, it was probably tapes back then. I was, the, I was in that very brief window where we, records were out but not back in and CDs hadn't appeared yet. You had to throw away your, uh, uh, let's just hypothetically say, Beastie Boys tapes, right? <laughs> it's an idol. Your music is an idol. That is n- I, that's not where I'm going. Uh, I'm not going to say your video games are an idol. You're spending all your time playing Minecraft. None of you in the room do that, I know. Um, But that's an idol, right? That's the kind of thing that I would have heard growing up. Not about Minecraft, probably about something else. Um, I don't know, what would it have been? Pac-Man? I don't really remember. But Now, I uh, would humbly suggest that that is sort of an overly simplistic and maybe even childish application of the word idolatry. Um, It's not that those things can't overtake us and that they can't distract us. They certainly do. And a lot of us need to play less Minecraft uh, or whatever whatever it might be for you. But I think it's vanishingly rare that those kind of activities meet the definition of idolatry that I just gave you. Replacing God with an object, person, or symbol in which we place our trust. So you're not putting your trust in your music or your video games or your romance novels or whatever it is. There may be a distraction to you. There may be an element of kind of personal um, sloppiness and laziness in your life if those things are taking up too much time, but that's not idolatry. And the reason I want to make that point is not to yell at my you know, forebears or to complain about the church I was raised in. My faith is real because of those wonderful people in that church. 
But I think that modern-day idolatry is much worse than what I just described, and it's much more subtle than what I just described. And I think we need to address it. I think nowadays we're much more likely to replace the one true God as the object of our trust with some of these things. How about our nation? Its military, its president, its supreme court, its flag. If we are honest with ourselves, those of us from all across the political spectrum, I am not pointing fingers at anybody in particular, turn to political means as a way of expecting God to work. And that's the kind of nice patina we put on it, but what really we, we hold in our hearts is that we place our trust in these systems and in these symbols, and we get very preoccupied with them. And we're so concerned with the election and making sure that the worst candidate in presidential history doesn't get elected, and it doesn't matter which one you think that is because everybody thinks that one of them is or both of them are. We get so concerned with the symbology of nation. We get so um, concerned with uh, all the trappings of uh, our nation that patriotism, which is a good and honorable thing, becomes nationalism, which is an idol. How about we make an idol of religion? And we root for our church, which we love, or in some cases our denomination, which we love, which we think is the one true church that has uh, everything figured out perfectly. And maybe the other ones are, maybe they're probably still saved. We might see them in heaven. Um, But really, we have pinpointed the the perfect spot. We've carved out the, 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 the most perfect circle of truth in Christianity here at Artisan because we love it so much or in our denomination that we grew up in or whatever it might be. Here's a hard word. Maybe we even make an idol of the Bible. Do you know why I spend so much of my time as a pastor reminding you that Jesus is the true Word of God, the capital W Word of God is His Son, Jesus Christ? Where do I read that? Actually, in the Bible, which is God's word, but in a lesser sense than in the sense that Jesus is God's word. Jesus is what God has to say, and anything you find in the Bible, you read through the lens of Jesus, the Son of God. The reason I repeat that so much is because sometimes, in a completely honorable and commendable desire, to place Scripture in a place of importance and authority in our life, we begin to worship the Bible. The Holy Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Right. The Bible is God's perfect word insofar as it points us to Jesus. Everything points to Him. We make, how about this one, an idol of our work. In what sense do we do that? Well, we look to our job, our occupation, our field, our paycheck as the source 
of all that we do in life. We look to it as our sense of identity, who we are. How many times have you been at a party or met somebody even at church and the first uh, question of getting acquainted is what? What do you do? We define ourselves by the work that we do. We place our trust in the paycheck our employer provides rather than in the one true God who gives all things, including our jobs. But do you see how uh, if you get the order wrong, it has changed from gratitude and thankfulness into idolatry because we have removed the uh, God as the object of our trust and replaced it with something that God gave us. This is why idolatry is so insidious because it can take good things like nation, like religion, like scripture, like our jobs. And if we're not careful, we slip around and become disoriented and suddenly we're placing our trust in something other than the one true God. We could do the same exercise with, with relationships, with um, parents, children, spouses, friends, roommates. We could go a lot of different directions with this. But as we see ourselves falling into this kind of idolatry, we have to beware of the consequences because I think they are there, even though they may look different from what the consequences were for the Israelites. And we need to repent. No symbol, no object, no institution or entity, no person, no matter how wonderful, can ever replace the one true God as the source of our life, our security, as the object of our worship and trust. Well, No person except one person. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1. This is a New Testament book written, in other words, from the Christian perspective to a Jewish audience. It says in the the very first words of this book of the Bible say this. Long ago, take for example on the cusp of the promised land, God spoke to our ancestors in many ways, various ways, by the prophets say, for example, Moses. But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the worlds. He, Jesus, is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. You see, where there might have been a statue on a shelf that had eyes carved into it, but no life, ears that couldn't hear, mouth that couldn't speak, it's an object. Jesus, the Son, was a living human being. And in that human, alive body is the glory of God. He is the reflection of God's glory. The exact imprint of God's very being. Now do you see again why I I just can't stop talking about Jesus? (laughs) 
See, if we're left to our own devices, if we rely on our own willpower or our own conscience uh, to practice obedience, we will always come up short, won't we? How many have ever tried to achieve something simply by willpower? Or how many have ever known something is the wrong thing to do? Your conscience tells you that. The Spirit tells you that, but it's not enough to know it. You go and do it anyway. The truth of life is that idols come up everywhere. Even good things come up everywhere as idols, and we will eventually pick one and put it on the shelf of our heart and mind and start worshiping it. But Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. And you can never go wrong by looking to him. He's the image of the invisible God. That's the that's the one from the Colossians that I quote all the time. <laughs> By the way, that word image in Greek is icon. Do you know what word in Greek is used for idol? Icon. <laughs> Don't make an image for yourself of a god because the image of God is present, the icon of God. The exact replica, the very being of God is present in the image of Jesus. The last thing that I will say to you this morning um, is uh, based on a word that we find in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. I'm not going to read the whole verse. But there's a warning that says, Be careful that you do not drift into idolatry. And on a practical level, that verb is very important. It's instructive. Because um, worshiping an idol, whether a graven image, a carved image, or uh, whether an institution or object or symbol or person, it's not something that you simply think one day, you know what, I think I'm going to start practicing idolatry. (laughs) And there's the little idol switch in your soul that you flick it on and it's binary. No, no. It's more like the boat didn't get tied to the dock and it started to drift a little bit at a time, barely perceptible. And the next thing you know, the waves wake you up because they're getting a little bit stronger. And you think, I better get off the boat. And you look and the dock is miles away because you have drifted into idolatry. And the way to prevent a boat from drifting is what? To put down the anchor. And so, I want to invite you to put your anchor down, and the anchor is Jesus. Whatever else might be going on in your heart or your mind or your life, whatever confusion you might have about the scriptures and how to interpret them, whatever strife you are experiencing at this moment in our nation's history because the politics are causing us to have strife. Are they not? Whatever (coughs) personal pain is present in your life right now, however school is beating you up, however hard work might be, however much tension there might be in your relationships, however hard it might be for you to connect to a religious community, you can let all of those things drift 
if you put the anchor of Jesus down. And no matter what else comes, look to Jesus and trust in Him. And you may find that what you thought was the boat isn't the boat anyway. (laughs) And that can drift away and you can let it go and it might be scary and painful, but you are anchored to Christ. That is my pastoral exhortation to you this morning. Your anchor is Jesus. Let's pray. God, this old religious text is a gift to us because it shows us uh, the inclination of our hearts is always to place our trust in things that we can see and touch and taste and hear. And sometimes we cannot see or touch or taste or hear you. And yet, we know that you are perfectly revealed to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to know how to make him our anchor, we pray. So that we do not drift into any of the kinds of idolatry that tempt us on all sides. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, you can't always see or taste or touch God, but you can taste communion. One of the reasons I love it so much. It's physical. You can see it. You can taste it. You can smell it. You can touch it. Come and receive the body and blood of Jesus this morning. Our table is open to all who are seeking to follow him. You don't have to be a member here or anywhere. We have uh, bread that you can dip in one of the cups. We have both wine and juice. Choose the one that's most appropriate for you and your family, please. There's a gluten-free option in the middle. Uh, Something for everybody. (laughs) Jesus offers himself to you this morning. Will you come and receive him into your own body, into your own heart and soul? There will be a member of the prayer team here if you'd like to receive personalized prayer in this time as we continue to sing in worshiping him. Our table is open. Hear the call of the Holy Spirit and respond as you will. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.